If we could just bend more energy out of our souls to bless the Lord Jesus for the fact that he saved us. When he could have let us go. Do you believe that? That's what makes salvation so precious. He didn't have to do it. But he did it and he was willing to do it. We want to read tonight's story in light of these verses. Remember these before we read the story. This is a faithful saying. How many times in Timothy do you find this statement? This is a faithful saying. You can count on this. This is no lie. This is the honest to God's truth. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation. Everybody anywhere, anytime, any place can accept it to be true because it is. God's not pulling your leg. He's not trying to pull a fast one. He's very thoroughly honest here. And here is what is so wonderful. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that wonderful? Paul said, I am, a, I am chief. Then in the chapter 2, this is First Timothy 1, then chapter 2, after the exhortation to pray for all people, mention is made, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's good for you to pray for everyone. Listen to this statement. Who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to speak to you tonight on two breaches of protocol. In essence, one was a breach to a particular, it was a man's or woman's breach of the law of the day, the a custom. And when we talk about protocol, what do we mean? We mean an accepted form of behavior. It's kind of like an unwritten law of proper behavior. We learn such things that there are certain things in certain given situations that you ought to do or ought not to do. For instance, uh, we used to have a, a custom, at least it still is in our country, that when you saw funeral procession and you were on the highway, what did you do? You pulled over out of respect to the family of the dead. That's a type of protocol. It's a type of an unwritten rule or law of proper conduct. Let's say the Queen of England was to honor us tonight by coming and sitting in the service. What would we do if she came in the room and we, it was announced that the Queen of England was here. What would we do? What would be the proper thing to do? To stand up in honor of Her Majesty the Queen. A little more personal uh, type of protocol would be one that um, when you're eating at a restaurant, you've been served well by a good waitress. It is a Nice thing to leave a tip. Does, is there any law that says you have to? It's just a good. It's just good behavior. It's good etiquette. Something that you ought to do. Nobody's telling you to do it, but you ought to do it. 
Now, if somebody has a private dinner party in their private home, are you supposed to go crashing it? You're not supposed to, but that's, that would be a, would you call that a breach of protocol? Did you know we have an incident like that? And what if the special invited guest, the guest of the hour at this dinner party, got no customary service? No foot washing? No anointing? No special customary uh, Acts of kindness that says, we're glad you're here. That's a breach of protocol. These two incidents happen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Let me remind you, this takes place, I feel, in the city of Nain where Jesus has raised the widow's son. In, In Luke 7, the scripture says, this is in the city of Nain. That he raised this widow's son from the dead, which he can do and did do. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet. Now remember this, this plays into the story that we'll read tonight. That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And notice, and the rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea. And throughout all the regions about it, the news is spreading like wildfire that there's a great prophet among us. And that God is visiting this people in the person of this prophet. Now, let's catch the story beginning at verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to dinner, to food, to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster's box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him. You see, and the Orientals, and in Christ's day, you didn't sit at a table in chairs like we did. You reclined at a table, something like of this nature. And the Lord was sitting on the floor like this with his feet behind him. And this woman comes in, uninvited, into the party, into the dinner, with an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him. She's standing there. She's first of all standing And her heart is so broken over her life and her desire for forgiveness that she's just pouring out just great gushers of tears, just pouring them out. It's like rain falling from her face on the feet of Jesus. What a touching thing it must have been to see. Here this woman, who was a sinner, stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. The Bible teaches that the hair of a woman is her glory. And for this woman to bow down after she had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and then to begin to use her, 
her own hair as a towel to dry those feet. What an act of love and humility and adoration. And the scripture says that she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. That's a little out of place at a dinner party, wouldn't you think? Some kind of behavior like this. Now when the Pharisee which had invited him saw it, he spake, notice this, it's very very important. He spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, notice he's heard the rumors. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known. Now this is not something he's saying, okay, my guest, my fellow Pharisees and my friends and my students who are under my tutelage, I want to tell you that this guy's a fraud and a fake right off, and if he were a prophet, he wouldn't let a, a girl like this, a woman like this, touch him. He didn't say it publicly, but that's what he was thinking. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, this is very important too, he calls him by name. And let me just ask a question right off the bat. Do you know anyone the Lord ever called by name that he doesn't end up saving? There's no recorded instance in the Gospels where Jesus ever called anybody by their first personal name that he did not show grace to. It's interesting. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. It's a wonderful thing when the Lord's got something to say to you. And it's even more wonderful. It's wonderful that the Lord would say and speak to us. But when our response is as Simon, and he said, Master, say on. I want to hear what you've got to say. There was a certain creditor, a lender, which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence. That's denarii, a day's wage. 500 days in debt. And the other 50. 50 denarii. One owes 10 times as much. But notice the little commentary here. Not only is there indebtedness by both. One owes more than the other. But either one of them, whether it was 500 or 50, when they had nothing to pay. See, that's the dilemma in, you're in. Good person who's not a Christian, you're not as bad as some people. You may read your Bible occasionally. You may be outwardly moral in many ways. Not as bad as you could be. But that's not your dilemma. Your dilemma is you ain't got anything to pay. You're in debt and can't get out because you're broke. Listen. Here's the story. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. What a word of optimism. What a gospel word right there. 
He frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, you have rightly judged. You've got a sense of judgment, Simon. You understood the story and you understood the analogy and you, you guessed and judged right. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house, and they gavest me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. See, protocol was violated. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time that I came in, had not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil did... Thou not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. The best words that can ever come across the spirit and soul of the inner ear is those words that are still being spoken by the Lord Jesus. Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at dinner with him began to say within themselves, Who is this? It's one thing, a great prophet, and God's visiting the people. But who in the world is this that forgiveth sins also? Now, the story could have closed. Jesus could have had no more to say, but he did say something else. And he's saying these things publicly. You'll notice he's saying it in the audience of Simon and Simon's friends. And he says, to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. When he, was, when he was justifying the woman's salvation before Simon, he said, she loved much. When he was defending her before Simon, he says to, or speaks to the woman, he says, thy faith hath saved And listen, this go in peace. And listen, her countenance, if we could have seen it, from this poor, broken, weeping, sorrowful, repentant woman, laden with the guilt of her sinful past, received the forgiveness of her sins and from the Lord Jesus, the word to go in peace. The change that took place in her countenance must have been observed by all to see that she was at peace. She left in peace. We're going to look at this incident from three perspectives. Number one, we're going to observe the obvious contrast in the characters that are presented in the story. We have here a scholar 
and a whore. We could not have two greater disparity in individuals than what is found in the same story. We are going to secondly see the condescension, the humility and the condescension of Christ in accommodating the spiritual state and needs of both type of sinners. And then we're going to draw this to a close by giving you a few observations on conversion, which is his wonderful commentary on conversion itself, which we all can use as long as we're in this thing and convert ourselves. We can, we can stand to hear as much about what conversion is as possible. We can learn, we need to learn as much about it as possible. So there's some commentary and insights that we can draw. First of all, we're struck with what a great contrast is presented in this odd story. And these characters that are found with Jesus, if you please, in the same house. It's Simon's house. But it's really not Simon's house. It's the Lord's house. You see, who owns everything? I'll tell you, all places and all circumstances are the Lord's and He can step into anyone He pleases to reveal Himself. And He does in this particular one. And here you have, in this odd story, the fact that you've got two characters that are so opposite, if you please. In fact, even in the little parable that Jesus gives to Simon, suggests that there is a disparity of debt in the two individuals. In the story that he tells, one in the little parable was in debt 50 denarii, 50 pence, and the other owed 10 times 50, 500. Now let me point out, is there a... Can there be really some sinners that are worse sinners than others? Can there be some sinners that have sunken down into the mire of a moral abyss to deeper depths of degradation than other sinners? Can there be? Dick, we were talking about this a little bit today. Can one person be, in one sense, a greater sinner? Is that all or equal? Can one lost person have a little more morality and decency in them than another sinner? Well, of course. Can one sinner have been the subject of more common grace? And restraining grace in another. Can God's common restraining grace have prevented certain sinners from falling as far into the depths of the practice of iniquity than others? Can one have been subject in his upbringing to better training, better advantages, better teaching than others? You'll notice the host that we find and that through this little party for Jesus is mentioned in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Here we have a man, if you please, that's on top of his game. He is not a loser. 
as far as his status and his station in the world is concerned. This guy, and by the way, his, his line is religion. You see, he's a Pharisee. And we, you know, we get this opinion of all Pharisees that they were the biggest hypocrites, they were the biggest bunch of scoundrels that ever walked the face of the earth. Not all of them were bad men. Do you remember Paul said of himself that he, according to the law, was blameless? I believe Nicodemus was an honest Pharisee. I believe this particular Pharisee is also an honest. I think he's a respectable man as far as his earthly influence and power and reputation is concerned. Furthermore, he's a guy that has taken care, somewhat care of his life because he does have a home. The other woman, we don't know whether she was homeless or where she even lived, but he did have his own home. He did have the resources to throw a particularly good-sized party to feed everybody that day. So he had some resources. This tells you that he had been a very neat fellow. He had, he had played by the rules, if you please. He had worked hard. He was organized, disciplined, frugal, and responsible in life. And furthermore, this guy was a judge, a good judge of character. Jesus commends him that in the story... He evaluates properly. This guy's got his head screwed on right when it comes to knowing right from wrong to a degree. He understands. He's a good judge of character. In fact, he's a discerning critic. Do you not see that even in the story he sees a difference in Jesus than whom he invites to supper and this particular woman whom he doesn't invite She's a sinner. So he's able to size up people real quickly. Pharisees were known by their, because they had great attention to the Old Testament. It said that they, many to pass their official exams to become a Pharisee, had to be able to quote by memory the first five books of Moses. This guy's not a Ignorant when it comes to knowing something of the scripture. He was a Bible student. He was an expert of the law. He's a scholar. He studied, learned. He has certified credentials to prove it. Furthermore, he's a good works man. He is, like many of the Pharisees, he's meticulous to keep certain outward observations of the law. He tithes regularly. Do you tithe regularly? Do you give 10% of what the Lord gives you to support this church and the work of the Lord in general? Do you tithe? Simon was a tither. He was not only a tither, he was a faster. And when it came to the interpretation of Scripture, he was a conservative. You wouldn't call him a liberal, for he was well-oriented in the law of God. He was a man of conviction. And furthermore, because of the nature of the story, we must assume that this guy is up on current events. He knows what's going on in the community. He's heard the, rem the rumor that's been spreading abroad that God has raised up a prophet and that the Lord has visited His people and He's interested. He's well informed. He's cognizant of what Christ has been claiming and doing and what the town folk have been saying. You see, this guy, he's up on his game. He's got all the bases covered. And let me tell you, this amazing thing is, he's not a rubber stamp Pharisee. Many Pharisees at this point in juncture in the ministry of Jesus had already written him off. 
already condemned. And not Simon. You see, Simon is not so sure about Jesus, who he is. He's willing to take a risk. You know, he does something a little bolder than Nicodemus. Do you remember what Nicodemus, that honest Pharisee who came to Jesus by night? Simon's willing to have Jesus in his home by day. I mean, he's investigating a daytime interview. So here again, I think you've got a man that is curious, interested. He's thinking about the news that he's heard and he wants to know. Yes, he's a self-righteous man. And he views himself with some goodness, some legal merit. But he's still, because of who he is and what he's doing, a little uncomfortable. He's not totally clear in his conscience. This is why it's so critical in the story when Jesus articulates thy sins are forgiven and go in peace. That's two things because you see under the sacrificial system I don't care how astute and how punctual you were in offering the sacrifices and keeping the days and fasting the fast and giving the money and doing all that you've done the law never removed the guilt of sin. He He's laboring under a sense of guilt. He's not clear in his conscience. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 3 tells us that the offering of sacrifices never eased the sense of guilt in a, in a person's conscience. It's only stirred them up. So yes, there's some self-righteousness in Simon, but there's a question troubling him. Is this... Man, the self-proclaimed prophet, uh, this miracle worker, is is he indeed, is he sent by God? Or is he a fraud, a phony, a madman? And you see, that's basically the issue that every lost man has to face about the Lord Jesus. Is Jesus who he claims to be, who he said he is, or is he a madman? Is he a lunatic? Can it be that Jesus... Is the promised one. So the door is open to further investigation. He's not a believer at this point, and he has many self righteous errors and delusions. But oh, how marvelous the Lord works with him. But I'm going to ask you, folks, is there any perfect situation with any sinner where everything has to be just right for the Lord to save? Must you move from one place unto another place and make yourself a little bit better for the Lord to show you mercy and save you? So he's honest. He wants to be fair. And I I think this is the exact and one of the main reasons why Jesus went down and sat in his house. So here you have the scholar. How about the intruder, verse 37? The one who broke into the dinner party uninvited. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. Here's a woman. And we know what kind of sinner the Bible is speaking of. She is a debased sinner. She has sold her body in one of the oldest trades of the human race. 
This is the kind of sinner. When the Bible says she was a sinner, it doesn't mean that she was a naughty girl and took her sister's candy. This woman knew what being sinful meant. The marks of a hard life. You were to see her countenance that day. No one lives in immorality and doesn't develop a hard, stern countenance. Sin, especially the sin of immorality, takes the life out of you. It takes the beauty out of your countenance. It turns you into a hard-looking individual. So the marks of a hard life are upon her. If you were to look at her, very few traces of her former beauty remain. She's a sinner, a big sinner. She's led a particularly sinful life. Her sins, Jesus says, are many. Now think about this, many. Time after time after time, she's broken the commandment of God. Time after time after time, she's done what she shouldn't have done. She knows what sin is. And her reputation has followed her. See, you don't live an immoral life and not develop a reputation. You don't violate God's law. And get by without the stain on your character and reputation. She doesn't have a good one. She's just the kind of woman that decent people don't want to be around. They don't want to touch her. She's been written off by the community as an incurable, hopeless reprobate. In fact, if you heard her story, if her deeds are wicked acts, in fact... Her life has actually been so shameful that the scriptures must make no mention of the detail of her sordid act. Let me tell you, she knew what the most vile, desperate, ungodly acts that a woman could commit. She knew what those were. Her mind, her conscience had to be severely scarred. The world that she knew had been living in was dark, twisted, wicked, defiling, and dangerous. Most people who take the path that she had known end up perishing in bitter despair. See, as a sinner and the kind of life that she lived, the kind of woman she was, was she worth much to anybody? See, that's the way the world treats those whom it abuses, ready to Pay you one day and cast you off the next. Her life is not worth much. If she had been found murdered in a back alley, no one would have much cared. But is such a soul worthless to God? Hopeless? Beyond redemption? This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus is fixing to do what he came into this world to do. So the focus is upon two utterly opposite individuals. 
And Christ, amazingly, is after both of them. You think he's just interested in forgiving the 500 pence sinner? He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He frankly, in verse 42, the parable, the little story, he frankly forgave them both. So we have one who is outwardly, outwardly squeaky clean, the other who is grossly dirty, and both of them have nothing to pay. The lost soul who is very knowledgeable in Scripture, the person who has grown up with the teachings of the Bible and have been preserved miraculously and sovereignly by God's restraining grace from falling into the depths of sin, has no more to pay for his salvation than the person who has plummeted the depths of iniquity. In one sense, both are in the same state. Nothing to pay. So here's a lost soul, a lady that has known the immoral life of the streets, intimately acquainted with the darker side of humanity. Let's look at the condescension and meekness of Christ in accommodating the spiritual state of both these sinners. You see, he was already obviously working in the case of the woman. You see, no one begins to feel sorry for their sins just simply because... How do you go from the whole hog practice and love of sin to one day just waking up and realizing what I've been doing is wrong. It's wicked. I need forgiveness. You see, this woman is awakened to know and feel what she is. She feels the weight of her sinful life crashing down upon her. The other sinner doesn't really know what he is, but he's about to be exposed for you see, the Lord Jesus teaches in this story that though there be some outward external difference as far as the depths of sin each other has experienced in the critical issue, they are exactly alike. In the sight of God, they are bankrupt. Without a penny, each had nothing to pay. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever been broke. There's an old gut, there's an old bluegrass tune that says something like it was, the title is, I'm not broke, but I'm badly bent. <laughs> I mean, when you've got, listen, when you really get broke and you ain't got nothing to pay, what, what does it matter if it's a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars if you're broke? And that's our state before God, folks. We're broke. We got to come up with a, Payment we in God. We need to get this debt settled and there ain't a penny in our bank. What in the world are we going to do about it? Good news. 
The well-to-do Pharisee has no more resources of righteousness to pay off his debt to the Almighty than does the debased woman. And what's so amazing in the story is how our sovereign Lord is going to make use of the repentance and the faith of this one type of sinner to instruct and to evangelize the other type of sinner. How does he do it? Look at this. Now in this breach of protocol, you would think, not now, not at this time, can't I enjoy a quiet meal without interruption? But notice how the Lord Jesus in His meekness humbly accepts the most awkward circumstances. Now you, if you were at a dignified person's house and seated at a formal dinner gathering, and somebody comes up and starts weeping over your feet and washing them. Wouldn't you call it awkward? <laughs> but notice the Lord Jesus. How humbly He accepts the actions of this repenting sinner. This uninvited, abrupt, abrupt intrusion, this unprecedented, disturbing outburst of emotion, not only is received by the Lord Jesus, but it's allowed to continue for some time to the amazement of the host. Yeah. It's embarrassing. She's a sinner and she's making a scene. And the Lord doesn't seem to care in mind. For her unorthodox mannerism is not resisted, rebuked, or restrained in the least. In fact, the Lord Jesus endorses this override of protocol and pronounces this woman to be blessed. This lady is desperate. She feels something in her heart. And the time is right. She's got to express herself. She's got no time to waste. And how marvelous it is. The Lord's ready. How accessible Jesus makes Himself to people when they need Him the most. And by the way, the Bible's not kidding, folks. Seek ye the Lord. While he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. There's very few immortal moments that you pass through in your experience. When the time is right and the circumstances are right for you and God to meet. But there it was for that woman that day. The time was right for her and the Lord to meet. She had to do something. And the Lord receives her. He receives her touch, her tears, her sacrifice, her complete devotion. Why? He came into this world to save sinners. Christ receiveth sinful men. Even me with all my sin. I want you to consider how the Lord Jesus not only made himself accessible to the woman. How considerate and meek 
the Lord was to make himself accessible to the Pharisee. Verse 36, the Pharisee desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Beloved, it's not the Pharisee who's showing the greater hospitality. The living God has just chosen to go home with the Pharisee and sit at his table. Think about that. Who is this Jesus? What accommodating, how accommodating and meek he is toward the man's concern. You know, the marvelous thing about the Lord Jesus, he knows how to work with people right where they are. Deal with them according to the need. And you notice how tolerant and long-suffering Jesus was toward the breach of the Pharisee's protocol, his shortcomings. Did the Lord respond when this, but when he didn't get, there was no usual foot washing, which was a customary practice expected to be performed on visiting guests in verse 44. There was no warm, hospitable, welcome kiss which was the normal expression of welcome to my home. Verse 46, there was no washcloth with scented fragrant soaps for the head and the face. And the Lord Jesus had suffered, if you please, even the breach of all of this normal customary customs that were proper. And he didn't go around and say, well, I've never been treated such. He did sit down. He's gracious, not willing that men perish, but that they should come. How? Who should come? That they should all come to repentance. And how the Lord Jesus was so gentle in correcting His errors. The Lord knows and shows Simon that He does understand the kind of woman it was that touched Him in verse 40 sins. He says, her sins, which are many. And he showed Simon that he knew, knew more than just the woman's sins, but the exact nature of Simon's inward thoughts. Now you think about that. He's instructing time, Simon. This man, if he were a prophet. Simon, I have something to say to you. Whoops. He reveals he knows what Simon thinks about his sins compared to her sins. He reveals to Simon that Simon thinks his sins are small and little of the 50 pence sort and that hers were huge and great of the 50 pence type. And he makes sure Simon considers and thinks about his own problems because, as I said before, through the law and the sacrifices is there... The removal of guilt? Is there a sense of cleansing and a clear conscience before God? No. And in announcing publicly to the woman, he's saying to Simon, You need forgiveness. You need peace. You need to be forgiven of your debt and you have nothing to pay. Hey Simon, are you feeling good in your heart about yourself? He shows why this woman did the particular things that she did. And he shows Simon why he did not do what he did 
that he was short on love. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, what I've, my, I'm driving home point is, do you think that all of this instruction and illustration, yes, we know that he's dealing with the sinner and he's saving, but do you think that this is vain towards Simon? You think it's just wasted action and wasted words? Let me conclude by giving a few lessons as a commentary on conversion. For before us is not just a record of an extreme emotional outburst, but all the evidence of orthodox faith and conversion is set before us. What do you mean, Brother Don? I mean this. There are some factors that are common and essential in every True conversion. Some things are given. They must be. We find that in the womb. What what are some of the common things if anyone is going to be converted? You will not be converted unless you repent of your sins. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Do you see this woman? Why is she crying? Why is she broken hearted? She's undergoing, beloved, a change of heart. She's deeply sorry for her sins. She wants to change directions. She wants to do differently. And that's what repentance is. It's wanting to do differently. It's wanting to turn around and let go of your past life. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let go of your past life and put it behind you? If you are, you can be saved regardless of what that life has been. Repentance. Her heart is tender, touched. It's uncharacteristic of a woman of her reputation and her past deeds. The type of sinning she was accustomed to made women hard, cynical, bitter. But she's not hard. She's broken. She's upset with her life. She's sorry for all of those times. She's broken the law of God. She's ready for a change. Ready for something different. I'm sick and tired of my old life. I don't want to live like this anymore. I've got to be forgiven. I've got to be saved in Jesus. If you don't do it, I have hope. She repented. Her priorities are different. She had an alabaster box of ointment which was spikenard, which probably represented an investment in the money that she had made at her trade. This was a valuable commodity, and it, in many cases, represented a whole lifetime of savings. As you see, her interests and her priorities now are different. Her affections, so what? She's, turn, she's turning around. She's setting her affections now on Christ and her gift to Christ. Her offering of this valuable commodity, her greatest treasure, is a testimony that she's found and desires even a greater treasure than this. 
It indicates a radical refocusing of her values. Beloved, it's one of the finest evidences in the world that one has turned from the love of the world to the love of God when you start seeing them give and give sacrificially. It's a good sign. Something's going on there. When you see people start giving. Her faith in Christ in verse 50, Jesus told her, Thy faith hath saved thee, thou art justified by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. He tells the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Your works has not saved you. When pointing her out to Simon, he said, Look at her works. Look at what she's doing. When he talks to her directly, she doesn't say anything about her work because it's not by works of righteousness what she's doing. It's her faith. It's how everybody is saved. We're saved by faith, by trusting in Christ, by believing in Him and Him alone. And she makes a public confession. Was not this whole episode a confession before men? For the Scripture says, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. She was oblivious to any social status, any restraints. She had no invitation to be at the table. She broke all the rules of etiquette and protocol. She had to come and confess Christ. And she confesses Christ in her tears. Jesus says, that she loved much. She had a love for Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Verse 47. She loved much. She had a bold, strong, courageous love for Jesus. And by the way, notice, he makes mention that she loved him before he even mentioned the fact that she was forgiven. That means that she had a love for him before she had even really any full assurance that she was forgiven. You know, this is an important thing. Sometimes you may be struggling with your assurance, I don't know if I, if I am really a Christian. I don't know really if I'm saved. Well, do you love Jesus? I'll tell you, if you have, if the love is there, the forgiveness is there. So, Lord Jesus mentioned these things are common to all true conversions. Love for Christ. But there are some things that are unique to individual conversion. I hopefully sense, and we, I do believe, have reason to suspect that Simon was later converted just by these hints. Verse 36, the strong usage of the word desired him that he would eat. Desired him. And he went, the scripture says, into the Pharisee's house. And then as I made mention, Simon, listen to Jesus as though he's teaching a school child. Simon, <laughs> listen up. Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And you know what Simon says? Bug off! I'm not interested. Did he say that? Speak, Master. Say all. You know, it's a wonderful thing when the Lord has something to say. And He's not silent. It's when God's silent. Won't say. 
You remember when Herod was demanding of Jesus all sorts of words and all sorts of miracles and Jesus said not a word? Master, say on. And the fact that in his hearing, he pronounces the woman, say by her faith, thy faith has saved thee. He's preaching to Simon. You need faith in me as well. You need to have a settled conviction that I am the prophet that was sent into the world. I am God visiting the people. And when he said to the woman, thy faith, has saved thee, go in peace. I'll tell you, timing factor can be different in individual conversions. I've seen conversions, some of them have happened real quick, suddenly, dramatically. But some conversions are very slow. Did you know that? Slow in the sense that they're gradual, progressive, drawn out. With some people, it's difficult to pinpoint just exactly when it was that the new life burst in. And, pa- they, and the individual passed from death into life. So the timing factor can be different. The emotional display upon conversion can vary grateful. Some people in their conversion can have extreme, wonderful burst of tears. Some people in their conversion hardly show any outward emotion at all. Does it mean it's not real? And can you just judge something to be real because of the outward emotions attached to it? No, emotions can vary greatly. By the way, to stereotype conversion as all needing to meet a certain standard is not wise nor is it biblical. Immediate visible changes can vary greatly in individuals. Some people, when they're converted, have an immediate radical change that is visible. But if an individual's life, their former life in sin, was lawful, decent, and orderly in the externals, there's not such a great visible change that can be noticed. And then public confidence in people's conversion can vary. In verse 50, we know for sure that the woman was saved. No doubt she was converted. Is there any doubt? Jesus says so. Thy faith has saved thee. How about Simon? Do we know? We're not so sure, are we, whether he was converted. Scripture doesn't say he was. There's reason to hope that he was. But isn't that just like real life? Isn't that just like every situation, a lot of situations in any church of any size? With some people, it's easy to tell that they've come to the Lord, that they know God. You just know. But there's others that you look at their life, you just don't know for sure. You wonder, do they really know the Lord? The Lord Listen, your experience doesn't have to be like someone else's, but there's one thing again that you must have a turning from your sin. 
and casting yourself upon Christ and faith in Him. Because you see, He's the money that you owe. He's the wealth that you need. You're bankrupt. You got a big debt. You can't pay it. He can. Rush to Him. Christ receives debtors. Pays off their debt in full. Blessed be His name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being kind and merciful and gracious to sinners. Thank you for giving your life in the place of us sinners. Thank you for drinking down the awful judgment of God that we might be pardoned and set free. We pray tonight, dear Lord, if there's, whether there's a 50-pence sinner or a 500-pence sinner, that they will be aware that they have nothing to pay and they need resources that they cannot obtain by any of their self-doing. Help them to flee to you and to trust you and to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Bless this people. Thank you, dear Lord, for the privilege of having been with them these two services. And I pray your tender care upon this flock. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your hand will be upon these elders that minister so faithfully to these dear people. I thank you, dear Lord, for the young men that you're bringing on here. Thank you for the good work that is so obvious, the sinners that you're saving, the saints that you're perfecting, the glory that you're bringing to your name through this work at Kirksville. And I pray, Lord, you'll keep them in your tender care and bring them safely into glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.